Can divorce be predicted? We are so glad that you're here because you're choosing to thrive after betrayal, trauma, or addiction. Hi, I'm Ashlyn, the once betrayed. I'm Kobe, the once addicted. And I'm Brandon, the expert. Now, why am I an expert? Because I've treated betrayal, trauma, and addiction for over a decade. All right, you guys, before we answer that important question, um, I just want to share a review that we got just recently, a couple days ago, actually, from uh, Hillary Bopp. So um, it, she says, I stumbled upon this podcast a few years ago, searching desperately for some help to get me through this, uh, the difficulties of my marriage at the time. And the title is what drew me in. I'm now sharing episodes with friends who are struggling with the same issues. And I'm able to suggest this podcast to my recovery groups whenever I get the chance. There's excellent advice for marriages struggling with sex addiction, but really any marriage could benefit from the practical advice given in each episode. Y'all are so honest and on point with your advice and strategies. I always feel more hopeful and less crazy after each episode. Thank you for dedicating your time and hearts to this podcast. It is such a great resource. So I love that. Thank you for listening and for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it in your groups and everything. So we really appreciate that. Awesome. Okay, I am going to just remind you guys, we are recording remotely, so we are all um, in our homes, or in our, uh, Brandon is in his office, because of the coronavirus, we are doing our part, so the audio may sound a little different than normal, but hey, we're safe and we're sound, so we have a guest with us today that we're excited about, and I know you guys are going to be excited about. Uh, we have Dr. Robert Navera, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified Gottman therapist and master trainer, um, as well as a master addiction counselor. He trains counselors and therapists around the world and has co-authored several book chapters and articles with, the, with Dr. John and Julie Gottman. He's created Roadmap for the Journey, which is a path for couples, a two-day recovery from it's been featured at the hazelton betty and has been given as treatment program as well as in small semi-private workshops dr navara maintains a private practice in san carlos california and also teaches a graduate or several graduate classes at santa clara university we are so excited to have bob here with us today and uh, talk about a topic we really haven't talked much about here on the podcast um, so, Bob, the question we asked, um, let's start with that. Can, uh, can divorce be predicted? Yeah. So this is a really interesting question that um, one would think, you know, individual behavior is kind of hard to predict. And so this idea of how can you predict sort of the direction a relationship takes, turns out that we know a lot about relationship behavior, so to speak, and that Yes, there's a high degree of predictability associated with certain behaviors that uh, are maintained over a period of time. So we know what predicts relationship distress or divorce, and we also know what predicts relationship stability. So that's the good news in all of this. (laughs) That is good news. Could you tell us some of those those behaviors or factors that, that really show us what's predictable or not? Oh, I'm sorry, that's confidential. (laughs) <laughs> all right you're all right you're all, anything else you want to ask <laughs> yeah so there's a number of uh, components to this question actually the the one that people are familiar with the Gottman research so this is research that's been going on for 45 plus years still 
in an ongoing mode. Uh, the four destructive patterns of behavior that are sort of over and over again are referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is a kind of this doomsday kind of title that goes along with basically the destruction of relationships if these negative patterns are maintained over a period of time. So given that none of us are perfect, you know, progress, not perfection, right? Uh, it isn't that if you have evidence of this, that's necessarily a predictor, but if it's sustained over a period of time, then it's problematic. So the first four of the four horsemen is basically criticism. And this is this idea of uh, blaming the partner, attacking. It's kind of evident in words or terms like you always, you never, and you're describing the person. You're not describing the behavior that you're upset with. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one is criticism where you're placing the blame into the personhood of your partner is what it is. So the good news, and I'll say this along with all four of the all four horsemen, is that there's an antidote. So if you're upset with your partner and we haven't spent much time together, a good critical statement uh, would be you always are focused on your electronics or on work. You never want to spend time with me. So that would be a definite version of criticism. But underneath it is a longing for a connection that can be reflected in a much better effective statement like, it's been a while since we've spent time together. So you're describing what you've noticed. I'm uncomfortable with that, or I'm sad, or I'm lonely. You're adding a feeling. And then the third part is a request. I'd really like us to figure out how we can spend more time together, like starting mm -hmm. now, <laughs> for instance. It almost feels like, as you talk about that, that first horseman, um, you know, the, the critical part is like trying to force somebody or control them or get them not to do something where the antidote is more being vulnerable and open with the person about who you are, right? That's exactly right, Brandon. Because underneath, even with all the four horsemen, there's a sense of there's a longing for connection and it's just coming out sideways. So there's an emotion we want to get to. When we're not suppressing needs, what we're doing is we're trying to figure out how to express it in a way that most likely creates a good outcome. And so it's right. hard to turn towards somebody when you're feeling criticized, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to, you know, oh, you want to spend more time with me? I'm not sure I want to spend time with you. This doesn't feel like a good moment here, you no. know? And what I learned as a therapist long, even before the Gottman training, and I've been doing this quite a while now, is, is when partners describe themselves and not their partner, then that's that vulnerability you're describing. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. the key. I'm mm -hmm. sad. I'm upset. Here's what I need. This is what I would appreciate right now. This is important to me. It's just, yeah. it, that's much easier to turn towards. Bob, okay, will so you I, repeat that statement oh. again? Sorry, Ashlyn, but Bob, will you repeat that statement that you just said um, about a partner describing themselves? Yeah, so the concept would be when partners describe their themselves. So here's what's happening for me and here's what I need. Uh, that is much more likely to create a good outcome rather than describing the partner. You don't mm -hmm. spend time with me is different. And it's not a matter of being politically correct, so to speak, or the right language. You don't have to be a therapist to do this. This is all based on what we learn from couples. So this is not out of the imagination of therapists. This is observing what successful couples do. And successful couples, when they manage emotions, describe their emotions and their needs. Mm -hmm. I'm upset. I love that. Yeah. It's really powerful. Very powerful. So if, well, if, and go ahead. Yeah. My question is this, uh, for me, I didn't I wasn't mindful enough or emotionally intelligent enough to even know what I was feeling besides mad for a long time. 
And so even that simple, okay, describe how you're feeling versus how it's so much easier to point fingers. So is that common or am I crazy? Oh, no, <laughs> uh, no, that's very common. <laughs> and there's, there's a kind of a strategy. If you're not sure what you're feeling, you just feel a little off. You can't go wrong, really, for the most part, with saying, I'm upset. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that that can catch a lot of emotions. And then you might be able to dig into that a little bit more about what you're upset. Maybe I'm upset because I'm lonely or I'm scared or I'm angry and it's hard for me to identify that. So upset's kind of a good sort of generic term, emotional term that can good almost need like any, that. anything that's not feeling positive. Or I'm, yeah. And Bob, can you describe the, the reason why this is uh, this is so common for people's um, inability to understand that they're feeling emotions or that, that they're upset. Why is that so common for people not to be in touch with that? What's that from? What's that about? Yeah. So I'm going to be specific that I'm going to get global. So since I work so much with people in recovery, I learned this early on as a therapist is that, you know, the classic therapist question is, so how are you feeling about, what are you feeling about? Right. And I would get these kind of like, I don't know. It's that thing, you know, that Ashlyn just shared. It's not knowing. And so people who, you know, have struggled with addictions or been impacted and experienced secondhand harm from somebody else's use of some kind or behavioral problem of some kind, uh, learn not to have feelings. And so they're feeling something, but they don't know what it is and or don't have the kind of the model for how to address it. So from people recovery, um, I, I'll say one more thing about that and then I'll get global. Um, I was talking with somebody who was early in recovery and we were really processing this question. He goes, why am I having such a hard time? You know, da, 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 da. And so we explored some of the family of origin stuff and how we learned to suppress his feelings. And oh, by the way, when you drink, you don't have to feel. So now that you're not drinking, you're learning to manage your emotions differently and not numb them out. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he said something which I thought was very insightful. He said, well, you're kind of like a feelings doctor, right? <laughs> what, that's the concept. That's what recovery and so much about couple interaction is about, mm-hmm. is getting into the emotional life of both partners. So there's that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just, um, it's not just about... N- I mean, we're kind of digging underneath. It's not just about not being critical. I mean, being critical is one of the four horsemen. Right. But in order to not be critical, especially as, an, as a recovering addict, you need to be able to practice some mindfulness and awareness to be able to check in with yourself as to what you're actually feeling. Right. So then you can communicate about you instead of attacking them. Right? That's, that's it. You just nailed it, Brandon. And for, the peop- and for folks that have difficulty and challenge with saying, what am I feeling? I don't know. You know, a lot of therapists do this is very common. We'll have a a list of feelings. It's like, you kind of go, huh, you know, this one here and this one here, I guess I'm sad and I'm upset and I'm scared. Yeah. So if you have a list of feelings and you can Google these, of course, uh, that helps. And then the other thing that could be very helpful in identifying feelings is starting with where you're feeling, what you're feeling in your body. So I'll do this with clients a lot. What are you feeling? I'm not sure. What are you feeling in your body? Oh, kind of a tightness in my throat. Okay, so then we explore just that. That might be kind of, it's hard for me to express myself and I'm fearful of vulnerability and, you know, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. So that's a good start. Awesome. 
Okay, Bob, what's the next horseman? All righty. Uh, just one more thing. So the global thing is this is not oh, yeah. a dynamic oh, yeah. unique to people in recovery. This is a lot of people grow up with this version of it's not okay to express emotions. So there's reasons why uh, that might be difficult for lots of folks. There's also a protectiveness that happens when the relationship's in distress. So I'm not sure. And this is what Ashlyn said, that vulnerability that comes out. Uh, you know, so it's something that we work towards if you're not quite ready to have full disclosure with emotions. It might be something you work incrementally towards. Okay. So second horseman is defensiveness, which reasonably you might think kind of follows criticism. You know, mm-hmm. you know, the dishes are in the sink again. You never do what you're going to say. Well, I'm not perfect. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've learned there's, there's two versions of defensiveness. One is called righteous indignation, which is actually my favorite. And that's where you do the counterattack. <laughs> well, you're not so perfect. You know, what about last night? You're supposed to do the dishes and you didn't, right? Yep. And so there's that. The other version, this is all research-based stuff now, is innocent victimhood. Innocent victimhood is sort of not a, it, it's, it's less obviously defensive sometimes uh, where you're just sort of making excuses and maybe a little bit whiny, just kind of just not taking responsibility. Mm. And there might be. I've never of, done any of that. I, I'm sure none of us here have ever done that. <laughs> you sound a little defensive, Ashlyn. Are you sure that's true? <laughs> Arms folded. No, not me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then there's body language, right? <laughs> yeah, there's that. And so the antidote is, not surprisingly, and this is built into recovery for this built into recovery model is to take responsibility for some aspect of what's going on. So I didn't do the dishes last night. You're right. I'm sorry. You could say, I was tired, but I could see why you're upset. That's a non-defensive response. And so you're taking some responsibility and acknowledgement for something your partner's saying. And so that's the antidote. Um, we we use words like gaslighting and um, just in turning the tables and things like that. We see a lot of defensiveness. Yeah. Um, when somebody's struggling with addiction, there's a lot of shame. So there's a lot of yep. disconnection. And I, what I hear you talking about, Bob, is, you know, when a, when a partner throws out some kind of bid for connection, you know, like, hey, you didn't do the dishes. I'm frustrated. And it's like, well, you didn't do them last night. It's just that that's just a clear indicator that I, I don't want to meet your bid. I don't. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about bids for connection, what that means. Yeah, this is uh, an important concept in the model. And to me, this is actually sort of the epicenter of the model and and Mm -hmm. relates very directly to the concept of couples that are successful. So Gottman method um, and research, there's a lot of language uh, that reflects core concepts. And this is one of them. So a bid is any attempt a partner's making verbally or non-verbally to connect with the other partner. I'm lonely. I'd like to spend time talking with you. I'm scared about what's going on in the world right now in this COVID-19 thing. So there's a bid for something. There's low-level bids like, hey, how you doing? There's high-level bids that reflect there's a lot of emotional investment in me asking you something right now. Like, I'm scared. So how you respond is going to predict ultimately levels of trust and emotional connection. Mm. So the three possible responses with any bid are turning towards, which is the desired hope. You know, I'm scared. Tell me what you're scared about. What are you worried about? So you're there and you're responding to the person's bid for for support right now. What do you need? What would help? So that's good. And, And the concept is anytime there's a bid, 
there is and a, and a response of turning towards by the partner that puts money in the emotional bank account mm-hmm. is the term. So that creates positivity and it increases trust. The two responses that uh, take money out of that emotional bank account and could work it into the red instead of the black are turning away, which is reflected and just not responding. I'm really scared mm. about what's going on right now. Hmm. Mm, nothingness. <laughs> yeah, uh. And it may be not necessarily a passive aggressive thing. It may be, you know, I am too and I can't deal with this. And so right. I'm shutting down. So it isn't necessarily with malintent that people turn away. It might be lack of awareness. <clears throat> My partner's making a bid. And so there's that. And then the other more obvious negative response would be a negative response, a turning away response. I'm scared right now. I know, but all we ever talk about is this. You know, can we talk about mm-hmm. something else? would be a negative response. And that takes money out of the emotional bank account. Mm -hmm. So what we've learned, there's actually like nine different levels in this model that are addressed, that are relationship builders or relationship destroyers. When you turn towards your partner in a consistent way, uh, literally like nine out of 10 times is 86. So the couples that are on a stable path, we learn from the research, turn towards their partner's bids literally 86% of the time. Partners with that end up in a destructive relationship or not ending up together um, turn to each towards their partners about thirty three percent of the time. Mm. So it's not enough. And so yeah. that's a huge predictor of couples staying together or not. When the when, when the emotional bank is depleted for a long time, eventually the relationship's over. That's right. And yeah, and, and so what what I'm hearing you say is that there is definitely um, things and skills and tools that you can do in order to put deposits into that bank. So if you're feeling hopeless, you know, couples come into my office and what they want to do is play the victim and defend. And then they wonder why their relationship sucks. Um, But they can actually shift a lot of things and, and, and everything can change. So yes. Um, one of the questions, I'm going to steal Kobe's question. He, he wanted to ask you this, but okay. I, I want to ask you it right now right. because what he was saying is, you know, if you're, if you're in one of those relationships where there is like 33%, um, you know, for a long time, you've had these same patterns of behavior and you're feeling spent, can, can you turn the tide? Is it, is it possible to shift and start to meet each other's bids for connection? I think when we begin to name what the actual issue is, as opposed to, um, you know, attributing the relationships, when relationships aren't going well, then there's this concept called negative sentiment override. And what that means is that there's a perception of the relationship and of the partner that override negative perception that overrides any positivity. Mm. So there's that. And, and when positive sentiment override, when there's sort of empathic failures, you could say, or, you know, there's an inability to respond in a way that the partner wants saying, well, you're having a bad day. So when partners begin to shift the language from you never spend time with me to, I feel lonely, uh, then you're likely to have a better outcome and success. The challenge is that if you have a series or a history of unmet or unresponded to bids, then as you could imagine, uh, partners stop making bids. It's like, well, yeah. I'm not going to ask for what I need because clearly it doesn't work. You know? So what couples can do is to say, we, if just this one concept all by itself, 
is incredibly helpful. Bids and turning towards. So I would hope or provide an opportunity for your listeners to consider this idea to say, so if I talk with my partner about what a bid is and what's at stake, then maybe we can have a different understanding of mm. how to get our relationship back on track. Yeah. So there's great hope that, always. That makes so much sense to me because I feel like when we started naming just the education part, things, it does make a little more sense and more doable yeah. than when it's just, I'm mad and things aren't working and right. it feels crazy and chaotic. Right. And it turns out that conflict can be a relationship enhancer if it's done well. <laughs> so that's the thing that people go, hey, what? Was that? Well, something's not working. You know, how you manage the conflict is going to predict where this thing goes. So you never, you're selfish is a criticism. That's not likely to lead to a good response from the person you're accusing of being, right? I'm lonely. I would really like us to spend more time together is much more likely to get a positive response. So what we talk about uh, in this model is expressing a positive need. Here's what I need, not what I don't need. Mm. And so you're giving your partner uh, basically a recipe, as we call it, for how to be successful. And it's not because you're controlling. Point with this, because because oftentimes I've heard the comment, um, Bob, um, not just in my own relationship with Ashlyn, but with with others, is you need to figure it out. I'm not going to get be prescriptive every time you need to understand exactly what I need. And that can be when I don't understand my own self, when I don't understand my own emotions, when I don't even know how to express what I need, how on the green earth <laughs> am I going to figure out what my partner needs and, and then provide that for them. So hearing you say that is, uh, is quite vindicating really in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, sometimes those needs emerge out of the conversation. I'm not sure what I need, but if you're willing to explore this with me, uh, maybe I can figure this out. So there's that too. And, and there's also a huge difference. And, and this word gets a little tricky for some folks, but I think you've addressed it in your podcast, actually, the concept of interdependency versus codependency. <clears throat> so an interdependency as in this framework, it's the ability to trust that it's okay in this relationship to express how I see things, how I feel and what I need. Doesn't mean you're going to always respond with what I want, but if I can have a respectful reaction to what I want, then that's interdependency. And we need to have an interdependent relationship because that's what creates safety and intimacy versus motivated by codependent, manipulative, scared behaviors. So <clears throat> I, ha I have a question and, sure. and this question is both for you, Bob, and for you, Ashlyn. Um, when, when we talk about, and I'm kind of backing up a little bit. We talk about this negative sentiment override. Um, the, the, the people that I work with, and, and I think a lot of people that listen to, to the podcast, they have a, a lot of negative sentiment. They've been cheated on uh, multiple times. The relationship is a source of, of immense pain. And uh, bids haven't been met. Um, defensiveness has been there. Um, and so a lot of the, the people who I work with who are betrayed, they want to be married. They want a healthy relationship, even when their partner starts to hear them and, and meet their bids, they almost don't want to have that trust be rebuilt because they're scared that they're going to have to engage again in that relationship and get hurt again. So 
where, where do you start with that? Okay. I have a response. Do you want to say something first, Ashlyn? No, I just go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so what we've learned, uh, and actually there's, there's uh, I think the very first uh, longitudinal study on a fair recovery that's currently going on with the Gottman Institute. I'm, I'm one of the therapists involved in this model. And the first step in therapy when there's been an affair or a betrayal is really what is this phase called atonement. And atonement means helping the couple have the dialogue about the pain that was caused by this betrayal, mm -hmm. but in a non-blaming way. So if I were with a couple and the betrayed partner is expressing, you know, you didn't care about me and the kids, then I would redirect that and say, so put that in context of your emotions. I didn't feel cared for, or I don't feel cared for when. And so the partner is describing their emotions and not their partner. And so that's, mm. that's key to be able to begin to identify the trauma. And then in my uh, roadmap for the journey workshop, on day two, it's a two day thing for couples in recovery. We process trauma in the same way of taking a trauma from an addictive moment <laughs> that, uh, you know, picking a moment or an episode in which partners then say, here's how that behavior, when you were intoxicated at our son's fifth birthday party, I felt these things. And then actually have the partners who are listening, ask more questions. How do you think this impacted yes. us? How do you think this impacted the children? So there's a series of 10 questions I have partners process. And the thing about that is that I assume both partners have been, have been traumatized. So the person with the addictive disorder can express sorrow they feel over an episode. Uh, so having done this model in a number of venues now, it's like I can see the power of the person with the addiction saying, here's how I've been traumatized by this thing called addiction. And their listening partner, the non-addicted partner is often shocked going, because it doesn't occur to them that, oh, you've been totally. traumatized too. <laughs> oh, not just me. Yes. Yeah. It was, that was like a big shift for me, even just understanding they were two separate things, Kobe and his addiction, but also the way he felt was very similar to how I felt. And that shocked me. Um, yeah. um, I will say this, giving some words like you giving me some words to how I felt I feel like Kobe used to always say you're so negative and I really was and I think it was that I just had that like screen over my life that everything was just negative and hard and icky and now I think just having that um, having eyes to see and not being blind and saying everything's great but really saying hey I can reframe this and and kind of make it fit into my world, I guess. Not, that sounds crazy. I'm not saying I'm, how do I phrase that better? Um, but I, I do live a better and more positive life, even when things are rough with Kobe and I, because we do know how to navigate and use the tools rather than just me shut down and say, it's so bad, it's so hard, and I don't see anything that's positive in our relationship, which is how mm -hmm. I used to be. Right. One thing, one thing we talk about a lot in Kobe, you know, Kobe's famous um, words are say more and hmm. um, to Ashlyn and, and, and we talk about curiosity and what I'm hearing you say, Bob, is that the, the way, where to start with this whole atonement process is you got to get rid of all four of the horsemen, even though we've talked to about just two of them so far, they got to be gone. Right. And, and, 
and the the partner, the betrayer, gets curious and and they they start to hold some space for that pain, and they actually meet the bit of connection in that pain yes. with that partner, and that's where the process of healing starts to 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 take place. Boy, you just captured that beautifully, Brandon, because what we've learned from the research is that what builds trust faster than anything in a relationship is this concept of emotional atonement. Not atonement, attunement. <laughs> Sorry. Mm-hmm. Emotional attunement. And emotional attunement means a partner's each partner's willingness and ability to listen to their partner's negative emotions. Mm. You will not be you cannot build trust faster than that. Tell me how this behavior hurt you. I'm willing to listen to it. It's really hard. And as long as we're not into shame and blame, but just this is how the impact of this thing on me. And if partners are willing to listen to this, we know from the research that that relationship is much more likely to survive if you can talk about the pain from the betrayal, whether it's addiction and or infidelity, other betrayals as well. Right? So that's crucial. Awesome. Okay, we got to get to all four horsemen. Okay, so what's number three? Okay, number three is the biggest predictor of the four, and it's contempt. And mm. contempt is sometimes described as uh, criticism on steroids. Mm. What that means is it's stepping up. Not only is there a negative interaction directed at the partner, but it comes from a place of superiority. So blatant mm. forms of superiority would be mocking behavior, sarcasm. Oh, you have it so rough. Oh, ours is the worst marriage ever, you know, or mocking in the voice of the partner. So that's contempt. And then less obvious, but still seriously damaging forms of contempt uh, down the continuum would be uh, in basically an invalidation of the partner's reality. And that's that gaslighting you're referring to earlier, Brandon. Mm-hmm. It's like, that mm-hmm. never happened. And oh my gosh, with addic- addiction history, that's kind of an ongoing thing, right? Uh, right? That didn't happen. You're overreacting. I'm much like your alcoholic father, you know, all that kind of basically dismissing the person's emotions and reality. So the antidote for that is to say, well, underneath all the four horsemen, including contempt, is a longing for something, a connection. So this idea of expressing needs and feelings is the antidote. And what's really interesting about contempt is that for partners that really struggle with contemptuous behavior and you know, put downs and name calling and belligerent kind of behavior, that's obviously contemptuous. Uh, it kind of defaults in my mind oftentimes and then until you rule it out, that's probably an, a voice that that person has heard themselves. So they've internalized and locked in this pattern that is old, probably growing up or another maybe relationships, but family history. And now it's being projected on my partner because that's the only mode I know to operate in. So um, their pain. You're, you're making my skin crawl. Like, ugh, I've, I've felt that so much in my office and, um, you know, in a, in a marriage, you can just see how destructive that is. Yeah. Is, is there a, like a magic way <laughs> for a partner who's feeling this contempt from their partner to have boundaries and communicate how much, like, like how, how, how to get them not to be contemptuous, but to actually communicate but to be boundaried with that contempt. Is- yeah. So in, in uh, the, the training we do with 
therapists wanting to learn this Gottman model, we say, do not allow any contempt, any expression of contempt. So you stop it. And so you just, the stop, it. You just stop it. Let me stop you right now. And then you're moving into contempt, which means you're putting your partner down. We've learned from the research that that's destructive and highly predictive of, you know, bad outcomes for relationships. So what's underneath this? What are your needs? So what a partner can do without a therapist in the room, which takes a lot to do this, because if you're feeling attacked, that boundary absolutely should be up like, whoa, I'm feeling attacked right now. And that's not okay. And so the partner who's being contemptuous might be flooded and overwhelmed and not able to respond otherwise. So in which case, what we would, what I'd say is, let's just take a break just to stop this interaction right now and then get back to what's going on for you right now. So what that would be a good time for a timeout. That's a great time for a timeout. Yeah. And we've okay. learned from the research that couples that learn to do timeouts like that uh, do much better than couples that don't. Yeah. So Bob, on that note, here's my question is yeah. when out, when a couple out is outside of the, the therapist's office and they're by themselves in, in whatever environment they're in, what's the, what's the best way for the partner who is on the receiving end of this kind of contempt to say, this isn't okay. And, and we need to yeah. take a break or time out or whatever the case is. Yeah, this is sort of the, the three component formula. I'm feeling attacked right now. I really need to have that stop or we need to take a break. Mm -hmm. Okay. That, or I need to take a break. So can you, you just, can you just repeat those real quick? Cause that was sure. really good. I'm feeling attacked right now and that's not okay. I need for us to stop and revisit this when we're both calm enough would be one version. Or I need to have you tell me this differently. What is it you want? What, what are you feeling? And that hopefully could work. If the person is not able to respond with, all right, all right, sorry, you know, yeah, you're right. I guess I'm just angry that, you know, we didn't go on our date night like we had been planning for weeks. They might, if they can't do that because it might, they might not be able to have the emotional sort of stop mechanism, then the best option absolutely is to take a break until this actually leads to the fourth, fourth, and by the way, fourth okay. horseman of, of stonewalling. Um, and stonewalling, so I'll just move right into it, yes. is when the person feels overwhelmed, when that limbic system fires up, and Gottman calls it diffuse physiologic arousal, which is a complicated way of simply saying my brain is on alert. That midbrain, lizard brain, some people call it is now firing up stress hormones and blood flows going from my limbs to my trunk uh, in case of hemorrhaging and all this stuff is going, adrenaline's being fired up, my blood pressure is going on, you know, so the, all this stuff is going on in the brain and I can't respond. So stonewalling looks like this. Nothing, verbally. Nothingness. Nothingness. So when your heart rate, this is the, statistical component of this is over 100, typically for most people on a bell curve. If the heart rate's over 100, then probably you're flooded. You might very well be flooded, which means I can't think, I can't process, I can't access problem solving, I can't, I, my humor's gone, I can't do it. I just shut down. So that's the shutdown version of being overwhelmed. Criticism and contempt is the activated acting out version mm -hmm. of the same process. So Can I'm you describe, eager. Oh, go ahead, Kobe. Sorry. Okay. So just a real quick question is, 
is can you describe the effect that the, the contrasting effects between uh, contempt and stonewalling on the partner who's on the receiving end of those things? Yeah. So it feels different because the per- partner who's at the receiving end of contempt, by the way, statistically has higher rates of infectious diseases. So recipients of contempt, we can predict that they'll have higher rates of infectious diseases in the next three years if it continues. It affects the immune system. you know. So anyway, there's that. Feels that attack and they're likely to stonewall. So they may just shut down if they're not able to manage it in the moment. So there might be a mechanism of survival attached to that. When the partner's experiencing their partner stonewalling, which means they're shut down, it looks like they're disinterested. The partner's like, why are you... So I've had a, I've had a couple, uh, well, this is typical. So this is a prototypical couple who struggles with stonewalling. So one partner is feeling attacked, they shut down. And in heterosexual relationships, it tends to be men. So 85% of the stonewallers in heterosexual relationships are men. Uh, but the same holds true for, same, uh, for uh, lesbian relationships, by the way. There are stonewaller, female stonewallers. So hmm. there's that process, that dynamic. And what happens is that the person shuts down, can't talk, can't process, and looks like this, looks away from the partner who's over here. And I've had uh, couples say like, well, there you go again, you're shutting down. You know, we came here to talk about our problems. Like, wh- why are you shutting down again? And when that happens, um, I kind of prime couples to know about all of this ahead of time. So I have what's called pulse oximeters in the office, where literally they, you know, put that little... Uh, oxygenation and pulse rate thing on their finger, right? So the heart rate that would normally be a resting heart rate for an individual might be 60, 70 something. Now it's 140. And they go, oh, oh, this is what's going on. And so this is why we need to stop this conversation and re-engage when both of us are calm enough to have a better conversation. And we know from the research that works really, really well. Now, I... I know that you know you have you have a a person in contempt or an attacker. You have somebody stonewalling. Um, you, you know we need to stop this conversation and reengage. A lot of a lot of couples or, or people are worried that we're going to sweep this under the rug. Yep. Um, we're we're not going to reengage, and and so so the the person who's attacking will continue to attack because it's like oh no you don't like no don't you take that time out i'm going to keep you engaged no matter what i have to do um and, and then it just escalates from there um so that re-engagement process do you do you work a couple through like tools uh, yep. and, and rules on, on re-engagement yeah. the two yeah so the general guidelines given are if one of you is feeling overwhelmed or you perceive the partners being overwhelmed it's quite fine to say need to take a break i'm feeling flooded so that's the code word okay. or some code word right and then the agreement is whoever calls for that takes responsibility to re-engage and what i mm. emphasize with mm. partners is that if you use this as an escape clause then you're going to blow trust and this will backfire and will not yeah. work so unless you're willing to re-engage, don't use that strategy. You know, there's yes. that. I like that. Yeah. And then the other important guideline for this is when partners are taking space apart is what's called the nature of a good break. So if you continue to think about how unreasonable your partner is mm. and what's wrong with my partner, we call that distress rehearsing thoughts. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like, oh, I personally, I don't know. Man, she always blames me. I'm <laughs> Separate room. It doesn't matter. That activation is still going to be active in the brain. Right. Right. It's still going to be running. So the goal is to think of anything but your partner and how unreasonable your partner is. So meditate, breathe, take a walk, play a game, watch a Netflix, binge on something like Netflix or something until you're calm enough to re-engage. So, so anything, that, anything to distract, calm yes. yourself down, and then have that commitment to come back and re-engage if yes. you took the time out. And that yes. increases trust. And so when you're talking about this, there, there's actually a very strong bilateral relationship between the strength of the friendship system, which is positivity, closeness, and intimacy. There's levels of the, in the sound in this model that th- there's three different, four different levels addressed as a friendship thing. What we're talking about is conflict. If you have a strong relationship where you're able to talk about things, make bids, person responds, then if you, when you hit those conflict bumps, uh, then those bumps are less awful because you're putting shock absorbers, so to speak, on this relationship car. So you feel the bump, but it's like this. If you don't have positivity in between these conflict moments, then boom, you're hitting these bumps and the car is really, the relationship is feeling the impact is what I mean by that. I love that analogy. Yeah, it um, works well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I see couples, really healthy couples, when those conflicts come, um, it really ends in connection. Yep. Um, good stuff. Yep. So, so yeah. actually, I want to say something really quickly about that, Brandon, because what we learned from the research is that conflict does not predict bad outcomes unless it's associated with the four horsemen or mm. it's escalating conflict. Oh, so interesting. That, so <laughs> what happens like, you didn't do the dishes last night. We'll go back to that one. Well, yeah, I guess I'm not OCD like your mother. Oh, no. Just increased. <laughs> the, the, the 10 pound cannonball went to 20 pound cannonball, we'll say. And then it fires back. Well, what about your father? You know, like he's really reliable, right? You're just like, <laughs> so just escalating conflict is a bad sign. Um, what is typical in, in the, the, the couple you're describing is you didn't do the dishes lesson. I know I was tired. You said you were going to do it. I know. I said I was tired. Okay, I'll do it next time. Okay, fine. And that's it. Right. It doesn't go anywhere. So negativity brings negativity and that's normal. But when it escalates or goes up Mm -hmm. in coordination with one of the four horsemen, then it's problematic. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Okay. So I have a question. Sure. I get this question a lot. um, And it's how do I know when it's time to get divorced? And of course, I don't know the answer to that because I don't even know most of these people who are reaching out. But um, I think that's like this question that people are like, how am I going to know? And my therapist won't tell me and my, you know, who's going to tell me? Yeah. So I, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. One is that we know that 69% of the problems all couples have fall into this perpetual problem category due to differences in who we are as individuals. Some people are more timely than other partner, than their partner, I should say. Some people are neater than the partner. So there's differences in, and they're irritating, and, but they're not deal breakers. Then there's deal breakers. So if those differences lead to a great amount of distress and I can't live with these differences, then that would be one version of why I can't stay in this relationship. So there's that. Um, Another version, of course, if there's any physical abuse that we would... Here's the thing that's kind of controversial, so I'll just say it. 
um, is that we've learned when there's uh, intimate partner violence, there's two, two categories. This is what we've learned from the Gottman research is characterological, which is what most people associate with serious damage. And there's definitely a victim and a perpetrator. So there's a dynamic of seriousness associated with it. But we also know that there's situational violence, uh, you know, that is not, none, it's never okay to have a violent episode, right? So I'm not endorsing it, but it's more common than we think. So there might be some grabbing too tight or something where it's either partner, there's no victim, there's no, it's not fear-based, it's just a bad reaction to. So differentiating between those two things, if there's any physical, serious, verbal assault, then clearly this is not a safe relationship to be in. And uh, there's kind of a litmus test uh, for sort of a generic response to this question. It would be, I'll ask partners, so I realize there's issues of, and challenges that this, you're experiencing in this relationship, but let's also focus on what is working. And so I'd like you to pick, there's actually an exercise, there's a list of positive adjectives. So pick, you know, three to five adjectives of something you appreciate in your partner, give an example of that and what it means to you. And partners that can't do that because there's a lot of contempt, it's like contempt's that big predictor. So, you know, maybe they need to work towards eventually getting that. But if there's this stuck place of lack of positivity and acknowledgement uh, towards the partner, then that's not a good sign either, unless it can be remediated some way. There's no positive regard. And yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Um, I, I see Bob and tell me when, when couples come in and they're, they're fighting, mm-hmm. um, I'll tell them this is good stuff um, because we got a lot to work with and you're, it, it all comes down to attachment and you, you want connection. And yeah. so you're fighting a lot. Yeah. When couples come in and, you know, he or she says, you know, I really wouldn't care if you went and cheated on me. I'm good. Like, I don't care. I'm, mm-hmm. And they're apathetic mm-hmm. and there's not energy there for connection mm-hmm. at all. They're just done. Yeah. That's when I've had a really difficult time getting a couple to try to re-engage and, and connect. Yeah. So, well, there's two, two divorce profiles that came out in the research. One is at six point something years characterized by this high conflict couple, you know, back and forth, like we're talking about. And then, then there's another version I think I'm hearing from you, Brandon, and that's the emotionally disengaged couple mm-hmm. and the divorce profile spikes at about 16 years. So those are the couples that don't care. You know, they look very different. So you can see the obvious sort of distress in a high conflict couple. And then you get to, eh, I don't really care because th- there's no emotional connection. Right. Now, right. both of those profiles can be worked with in therapy. And so if you're in one or the other, it doesn't mean you can't do something about it. But for some people, it might be too late. We know that people tend to wait. Uh, this, this research is a little bit dated, so I'm not sure if it's current. Um, six years before getting into couples therapy after they identify wow. a serious issue. Okay, that Ashlyn, has a, <laughs> you have a reaction to that, do you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, well, especially because I grew up thinking therapy is really, like, if you're getting divorced, you go to therapy, which sounds crazy because if we want to stay in a relationship, we want to figure out some skills and tools to yeah. stay in a relationship. Um, so I'm a huge proponent for therapy now, and I think it's great to just go and learn some skills yeah. no matter where you're at. Yeah. Well, that's, oh. that's important because what came out of this research, and people worry because they might call a Gottman therapist or 
call me, for instance, and say, so are you going to tell us are you, whether we should stay married? And I say, no. Yep. We start with an assessment. It's a very detailed assessment that we meet for quite a number of hours before we even begin therapy. What I'm going to tell you is, according to the research, what's working and what isn't working. And then you can decide what you're willing to do about that. Right. And so there, so first part of the research is what predicts divorce, but now we're well into the second phase and that is divorce prevention. So if your listeners, if you're experiencing a great amount of distress right now, um, uh, this stuff I'm talking, the predictive stuff was with research couples, not therapy couples. So none of this, uh, the research findings came from couples that were in therapy while they're doing this. Oh, interesting. Couples that were stay. What we know is that relationships are incredibly stable meaning they're either stable in a positive way or stable in a not positive way. So unless you do something to change that direction, uh, you're probably going to stay on the same path. And that's where therapy can be so helpful to change the path. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I think we could go on forever. Um, and, Until and- tomorrow. But <laughs> you know we're all just sitting around. Anyway. Why not? Let's just keep talking. <clears throat> we we have marathon time. therapy, so why not marathon podcast, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, um, Bob, I'd I'd like to invite you back on sometime. It, it was so good talking to you, and I think we're just scratching the surface. So we, I think we'd love to have you back again. And and like Ashlyn said, um, divorce and uh, obviously couples counseling relationship is is what people want to hear about. And so we'd love to have you back on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you have going on and um, where people can find you? Sure. So I have, uh, thank you, two websites Mm -hmm. that you can get some more information on some of this stuff of what I've talked about. One is drrobertnavara.com, which I know will be in the program notes. And I have a, a Gottman blog, and so we cover a lot of lot of stuff from the research on couples. Uh, you know what helps strengthen relationships, um, and then I have another website called CoupleRecovery.org, with another blog specifically for couples in addiction recovery. And I'm currently promoting and um, presenting Roadmap for the Journey. It's it's a it's a workshop for couples in recovery, which. Uh, I've given recently, actually, at Betty Ford Hazelden uh, several times now in different treatment programs, and I'm creating an online version of this as well that will be resources for couples to help integrate recovery into their relationship. So, so awesome. those are the big things going on for me. And, and Robert, are these, are these uh, workshops or resources that can be used for heterosexual, lesbian, and gay couples? Yes, Yes. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's a really gender friendly and fluid. It doesn't matter because the relationship dynamics. Oh, you know, Gottman had a, uh, 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 included same sex couples in the research. And so that's good. And basically the outcomes were pretty much the same with some exceptions in same sex couples are able to, uh, apparently manage conflict more effectively mm-hmm. and let get a little less flooded, but pretty much the dynamics are the same. Interesting. Very interesting. I've enjoyed this so much and I took a bunch of notes so I can quote you over on social media later. Oh, so cool. thank you. You're welcome, Ashley. <laughs> All right. Thank you for being here, uh, Bob. Um, again, just appreciate your contributions, not just here today in this episode, but just in general. This is uh, working, working for humanity is a, a labor intensive, mm-hmm. challenging uh, pursuit, but um, 
with the effort, the time, the, the, the labor that you put into this, it, it makes a difference. So appreciate what you are doing. Thank you, Kobe. I appreciate that very much. It's a big thanks. deal. Thank Guys, you. thanks for being here. And again, if you've heard something that you, that, that's resonated with you, that you've enjoyed, please share this episode because there are people who are struggling, who are in the deep throes of, do I stay married? Do I not? Um, who, who are unaware of the four horsemen as we talked about. Mm. This could help them um, move forward either way to whatever outcome is best for them and definitely want to be able to have you do that and if you haven't yet please also jump over rate and review the podcast that always helps people find this resource so uh, thanks for being here you guys we are grateful for you being here today all right see you guys bye-bye bye